Welcome to the 14th episode of the Tech Gypsies podcast. I'm Audrey Waters. And I'm Ken Lane. And uh, you'll be speaking loudly today. Yeah, I'm going to speak and enunciate, uh, and we're in separate places, so separate recordings. Yeah, it's. Uh, I appreciate the feedback that folks have given um, on the podcast so far. It's good to know that we have listeners. Um, it's it's good to, that people want to be able to hear you. Yeah, well, it's not that I don't know how to talk loud. I'm actually a pretty loud person. I just tend to soften it up and not be so rah, rah, big, loud dude. But yeah, I can do it. <laughs> um. So yeah, we have, I feel like every time we've sat down to record a podcast, almost since we've started this, it feels as though there's some like, um, the world is sort of in the midst of like one or two or three or four or 18 separate tragedies um, that I sort of feel like we have to respond to, but I sort of hate to sort of, it feels to sort of, you know, to I don't even mean at this point I don't even know what to say. Like everything is so incredibly the world just feels so incredibly depressing and I feel as though you know, I mean we'll talk a little bit and a little bit later about the keynote that I gave in PEI in which I sort of I wanted to argue that the world isn't technology is not changing faster than it's ever changed before. The world is not changing faster than it's ever changed before. The world is not worse than it's ever been before. But there's something about the exposure to social media, real-time streams, 24-7 news channels that I think makes it feel as though we are, or not even makes it feel as though, as though we are constantly bombarded by death, destruction, tragedy, terrorism, fear, mayhem. Not only are we assaulted and bombarded um, in real time, I think it's, it's... It's fine-tuned, it's dialed, it's amplified specifically um, and algorithmically to our fears and to what um, is going to get us clicked, clicking, get us returning and get us, you know, doing what, um, what, what I guess the technology wants to a certain degree, the technology owners um, out there want. I mean, what the technology, I mean, I think that, that you were interested in talking about a piece that the Wall Street Journal... Um, I think it's an, even an ongoing um, comparison that they have that underscores the difference between um, what what uh, someone looks like or the sort of what the news that you get on Facebook if you're sort of if the algorithm deems you to be liberal or the the news you get on Facebook if the algorithm deems you to be um, conservative. Yeah, it's uh, um, shows. You can you can click on different topics and it'll show you what the left sees and what the right sees. So it has like Hillary Clinton, click on it and it's a story on the left about you know her campaign, some positive spin, fundraising, something about children, something about her record. And then on the on the conservative side, it's like um, on the red side, it's like you know her email scandal, Benghazi, whatever. And it, whatever topic you choose, it really shows how this 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 news is being personalized um uh for just for you and and this to me is super fascinating right now from um my vantage point as I'm slowly um 
coming back from the woods and and turning on my regular streams and but still keeping um my distance from anything real time or any any conversations or anything that's that that is is part of that real time so i'm really noticing how my twitter stream my facebook stream um all my social media streams are tailored in this way algorithmically and that post really shows, you know, specifically Facebook, but I'm also replacing out any Twitter tools I have right now. That's something I was working on before I went out to the woods and something I'll start working on when I come back is getting rid of TweetDeck, getting rid of Hootsuite and these tools that I use to manage Twitter. And um, I'm unwinding the algorithm using the API to define my own um, way of consuming this information and engaging with these people. I'm taking control of that algorithm, but part of that is is how do I make sense of, you know, this this stream or this fire hose? That's it's a lot of information, and I can see why people are feel overwhelmed and just oh I just want Facebook to blast at me or I just want you know they pick their poison their channel and they just let the algorithm tailor it for them. But, you know, what are the dangers of that? What, you know, what, where are the problems? What are going to be the unforeseen things that we don't, you know, think about? You know, this is, this actually is somewhat connected to some of the arguments that I made in my talk on memory machines. And one of the points that I wanted to make there too was that, um, that there's something about the, the information technologies, right, that we, that humans have developed, um, from you know, from writing onwards, that have created and then shaped collective memory, but the mass communication tools of the twentieth century, right? So radio, television, I mean, even before that, if you think of the mass communication tools like printing, newspapers, etc., have had a ha there have been fewer, you know, because they were broadcast mechanisms. There was very little. There were very little options on the kinds of information that you got, right? And so, there is. I think it's interesting to see people talk about, particularly in the U.S., what a divided country we are. Um, when I think that you can see this, so it's um, so striking, in, particularly in that Wall Street Journal um, story, with how divided we are because of the very different signals that we're receiving from mass media, right? So it's no longer simply like the three major networks that give us our news or the local newspaper and maybe perhaps you subscribe to a different newspaper. I mean, there are there are a variety of publications that are catered to a more granular level, but but you know, how do these how have these changed a notion of a of a collective way in which we receive and understand the news for better for worse right i'm not saying as the i'm not saying that only having abc cbs and nbc or you know only having the nbc or bbc or only having the cbc is sort of preferable um but it is interesting to see sort of the way in which some of these mask you know the mass communication and i think that what we're seeing on facebook is still mass communication just because it's on the internet doesn't mean it's not mass communication. But I think that we are seeing sort of the, the collective being um, dismantled in ways that are, that do become f more tribal. Yeah. Well, and I mean, and who's, I mean, who can we trust online? I, 
you know, the whole Facebook thing around them, you know, shift having, I guess, a more liberal bent. I mean, it gives the conservative side another way of going liberal media, but in this new arena, I guess. But on Twitter, I mean, Twitter very much is a Wild West where, like, the most aggressive, seemingly the most aggressive white male, I guess not just all white male, but most aggressive people seem to win out on on Twitter. So I don't know, algorithmically, I I guess they can tame that. Twitter can, can make it sound exactly like you want or need as they perceive it, I guess. I don't know. I mean, I think that this is one of the, you know, the ways in which some of these the architecture of these new technologies, it does amplify, it does amplify certain voices, some of those connected to celebrity, right, and and the number of followers that you have. Some of it connected, though, to what you were talking about earlier with sort of this, this very, what, you know, what the media companies want is ad revenue, right? What they want are eyeballs, what they want are clicks. And so, and Twitter wants clicks because Twitter wants eyeballs and Twitter wants ad revenue. And so that really drives certain kinds of headlines, right? If it bleeds, it leads. It drives certain kinds of behaviors and it drives the architecture to reward certain things that get clicks, right? Whether or not they're, they're sort of hate clicking, right? Or, you know, clickbait, or whatever you want to call it. I mean, I think that these platforms really want people to behave what oftentimes is badly. It's not always behaving badly. I mean, sometimes amplifying messages can be positive. But I think because of the because of the desire to sort of um, because of the desire to sort of really have um, more people clicking. That um, it, that these things reward. I think uh, um, they do reward the loud. Well, I think that can the loud brash behavior. That can. I mean, they try to offset that with you know what's going to run users off. I guess to a certain degree, or you know, they they have to balance it in the algorithm. But yeah, the the, the primary motivation is going to be fun. You know, advertising and revenue. And, um, and this is evident in, you know, pe- companies like Snapchat who do APIs don't do them until advertising is part of the equation. Snapchat's now in the API game only because they want to automate um, the revenue engine injecting of advertising in between your messages and your communications and, and maximizing that and optimizing that. And so that's the number one thing. But, of course, they want those activities and those events, those clicks, those views, the, the, the chatter to, to be heap big. Um, but that also takes users and they can't run users off. So I see, you know, like Twitter puts in a lot of defensive, they're, they're starting to cater more towards the celebrity, give you more tools to manage your, your, your algorithm. But the rest of us who aren't in that, in that class, I mean, you might be, I'm not, um, are fucked you know it's like we have to you know <laughs> wait what class is this <laughs> well you're you should be verified and you should have these celebrity tools because you're twitter famous yeah yeah lucky me but you know what's um but what i'm hearing is almost as popular as twitter these days <laughs> yeah <laughs> this one's all you
this one's all me. Well, I mean, I, you know, I wrote, um, usually when I write my, my newsletter, send out my newsletter on Saturdays, I just try to have it be a collection of links that I've found interesting that typically pertain to some of my research interests, right? So the history of what I call the history of the future of tech. Um, but this week I really couldn't resist what well, I wanted to tie together several incidents that happened in tech. Um, but I really wanted to address the bullshit around Pokemon Go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> it's one of those things. I have certain keywords in my monitoring that I can, I can reward people for certain conversations and say, hey, you talk about privacy, you talk about security, API providers, plus one, plus one, good job. But I can also do pl- minus, minus, minus for certain topics, and Pokemon is one of those ones that... If it shows up in my stream, I'll downvote you in my overall algorithm, um, you know, because uh, I'm, it's, I don't give a fuck. I mean, I, you know, I think that, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, almost immediately after, I guess it was probably this time last week when it sort of became suddenly, you know, whatever, incredibly popular. I mean, I already saw... What I find, again, are these clickbait articles that people write, which are sort of, you know, the 18 reasons why this is going to revolutionize education. No, no matter what what's released, right, it could be Pokemon Go, it could be Google Glass, it can be Second Life, it can be Twitter, um, the self-driving car, how all of these things are going to revolutionize education. It's just meaningless clickbait, um, really. Um, and... Because I, I mean, I fundamentally believe the way in which we change, the way in which we change education, particularly to become more progressive, more just, is not through, is not through consumer technology, particularly not consumer technology that's predicated on this sort of late stage cap consumer capitalist um, mantra of gotta catch them all. So I, I found the whole educators sort of trying to rationalize why they thought Pokemon Go was going to be a, quote, game changer to be, um, well, to be insulting. Um, But then I think as things sort of, as things move forward this week, there were these, I think, fairly significant, (laughs) fairly significant problems that the game clearly faced. And you and I talked a little bit about this because you watched a documentary this week on Stuxnet. But I mean, I think it we we aren't really confronting the ways in which we have built this sort of information architecture that is where we're putting our most valuable secrets. And our most valuable secrets might be where our children are out catching mo- monsters. But our that most valuable secrets might also be, um, you know, military secrets, et cetera. And th- we just have very very poor security. I mean, mind-blowingly poor security. And, you know, one of the stories was that when you sign up for a Pokemon account, it OAuths via Google. It takes full access to your Google account, um, allowing it to have, I mean, really to have sort of, again, (laughs) read your emails, you know, go through your Google Drive um, stuff, know your search history, 
et cetera, because that was the that was the level at which the OAuth was set. Of course, the company that built this used to be a Google company. This were these were probably remnants of authorizations that existed when it was a Google company because people weren't actually asked to make these, you know, sort of, is this okay? The, the is this okay screen wasn't apparent to people. But it's really, it really sort of highlights the ways in which we are so careless with our data. And again, the response from some pretty well-known ed tech leaders was, this isn't a big deal, it doesn't matter. Google, the Google, they would never do anything nefarious with your work. They would never look at your email, which is super, super trusting for folks that are supposed to be helping schools and students learn how to navigate a, a, tech, a technical future to say, oh, let's not worry. Uh, you know, Google's pretty clear they're not evil. Um, but also, let's not, let's not ask questions about the kinds of um, authentications that we're making daily when we sign students up for work. It doesn't matter. Not a big deal. It's fun. Pokemon Go's fun. That's what matters. Yeah, I don't. I don't have a problem with people playing games, and I mean, I'm not much of a gaming type personality. You know me. I tend to be too fucking serious for that. But uh, whatever you want to play, whatever you want to do, and people building technology for that, great. But I'm, I'm with you. Our lack of critical faculties when when it comes to just assessing, you know, what is important, what is the next thing and security privacy all of that is um pretty pretty scary and i mean coming back online and seeing you know this dominate the news and not just the twitter the facebook's but any other channels that i've i've turned on the npr the various podcasts the even popping on to cnn and other things you see you know they all reinforce it like oh it's the next thing and how it's it's this this approach, you know, it's just getting people outdoors and everyone's got their little take on it is um, is always just troubling. Well, it's bullshit. I mean, let's be honest. It's bullshit. I mean, certainly people might have gone outdoors, but yesterday the servers were down and it's not as though people were like, oh, but we, you know, we could still go outdoors. We can still interact with our neighbors. It's gamification. It's behaviorist. It's not at all positive or progressive. I'm sorry. If you need if you need some, if you need to be a pigeon in order to be led outside with treats, in order to go outdoors and interact with other people. I mean, it's to me it's 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 gam- gamified um behaviorism and it's it's you know, if if indeed this was transformative, then people would have still gone outside yesterday when the servers were down. Right? I mean, and for me, the problem too is that this is really this really underscores how the overwhelmingly white um, centeredness of tech, and again of ed tech, because the ability to sort of wander aimlessly around strange neighborhoods, right, and to feel as though you will not have the cops called on you. And if you do have the cops called on you, that you can chuckle with them and say, well, I'm just looking for training my monsters or catching my monsters or whatever the fuck. I mean, again, like this is this is white privilege to be able to move through public space freely in such a way um, 
the game, the data model was crowdsourced from an earlier game um, called Ingress, and the 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 polka stops or polka gyms or polka somethings are almost entirely absent from black neighborhoods. There, um, this is a game that was built by, built for, played by white affluent people. And it's built with not just a data model, but um, a mental model of, of privilege. Yeah, I mean, it's back to the, I mean, the algorithms tailoring this based upon a certain class, a certain view of people, how they see the world, and people jumping on the bandwagon is just um, super scary, super dangerous. I don't like it. Well, I mean, it, yeah, it's digital redlining. And that you have the time to do this, that you, you can, you know, have the, the, the free time and luxury to be out doing it, and, you know, yeah, anyways. Well, this connects with what I wrote about in my um, uh, newsletter about the release this week by Facebook of their latest diversity report. And again, I wanted to just, you know, underscore that the shape of who's building the technology is overwhelmingly white, overwhelmingly male. And that matters because that matters by what, with what gets built. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as I slowly start picking up on my monitoring and, I mean, which involves going through 50 separate kind of industries and seeing where the blips are, what, what people are doing, um, you know, the even though the funding seems to have dried up, the the bad behavior and what people focus on seems to continue um, not actually solving problems and, and not actually doing much that's important. But if you can cut through the noise and clutter, I can find, like I'm finding water projects that are API related, I'm finding um, some interesting surveillance stuff, um, some disturbing surveillance stuff, but also some interesting, I guess, counter-surveillance work out there when it comes to um, NAACP and, and various people um, uh, creating software, creating tools that, that help people, um, I guess, combat some of this, uh, much of this bad behavior that's going on. And there was a, um, like, what mobile phones are to us nowadays as far as taking videos, you know, what we've seen in the latest, um, and, and, you know, as far as police shooting videos popping up, things showing up on Facebook, live streaming, and, and the mobile phone becoming kind of a symbol of kind of a movement, I guess. Um, there's, I'm, I'm optimistic, but I'm just worried that a lot of this stuff can't combat the amount of bullshit and noise and the power of Pokemon Go and that kind of mindless bullshit. Um, the, uh, I think that the, um, uh, the, the, the interesting thing in this ties into what I talked a little bit about in PEI was, is that, you know, here we, we have the ability to sort of, um, have technologies back in our control. I think we have the ability to have some of these technologies in our control, ideally, in order to push back on state surveillance, push back on um, 
you know, the police, um, police violence. And yet these technologies are also under the control of powerful technology companies, powerful corporations. And so what happens to, what happens to the content that we decide to, you know, broadcast on Facebook Live, right? Um, how is that, how is that perhaps different, um, perhaps analogous to um, other kinds of media that we had in the past? Um, but what does it, what does it mean to be trusting Periscope, to be trusting Facebook Live to record and to store and to broadcast in turn for us these important historical moments? I mean, we saw with the failed coup attempt in, um, in Turkey, the real importance that social media played and it has played in a, in a country where Erdogan repeatedly, you know, tries to cut off access to the internet, cut off access to social media for his population. And so as this plays out with, um, you know, citizens versus state, um, what is the, what are the role, what is the role of tech companies and, you know, who can we trust really? Well, and people are having these conversations that can afford it. Like I'm, Upping, stepping up my, my surveillance and transparency, different areas that I pay attention to. And when it comes to surveillance, I've shared a link with you for your researches on the amount of funding in the state of Texas for surveillance in the classroom and in schools. And, and I'm all the way up to, um, I'm studying companies who provide storage for camera surveillance, like large scale, I'm talking city scale, police force scale country scale where do you put this 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 camera this footage that is captured how do you store it how do you make sure it's it's accessible it's searchable um it's stored in the country you want it to be stored in and and you can do it at 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 a cost that you can afford and so they're having these conversations about where we store this stuff they understand the importance of it the value of it the problem is 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 us the average person who can't afford the the terabytes or the storage you know locally of this um, depend on the Facebooks and, and YouTubes and the others to be the, that front front line for us. Yeah, I mean, and I think that that's, you know, that's a, that's a real cha- challenge. I mean, I think that there are, I mean, I think that, you know, a, a platform like Twitter, for example, really took a great deal of pride in being a conduit for, you know, for um, uprisings and has wanted has sort of branded itself as as a site for free speech and free press. Facebook likes to tell the story a little bit too, but again, you know these these are these are certainly qu- companies that are that hand over hand over people's data to the government, um, and if nothing else, their terms of service. Um, make it their decision, their decision whether or not these things, um, whether or not you keep your account, whether or not these things get deleted, uh, whether or not they can be broadcast, whether or not you violated the terms of service by, by you know, um, by displaying these things. And it's, it's all well and good when, you know, when, when these companies sort of feel as though it's, you know, you, you, they're, they benefit from from this i mean twitter was thrilled twitter was thrilled that deray mechanism was arrested um wearing a black um 
one of the Blackbird tweet, uh, Twitter um, t-shirts. But, you know, Twitter's done pretty much nothing to actually hire black people. Um, but they were pretty happy to, to, have, to have their brand represented in that way. But that's, that's just a temporary brand alignment. I mean, there will be definitely, there are, there are certainly going to be times in which they're much less likely to be pleased, um, to be pleased with, with activism on their platform. Well, one, one thing I've been evaluating this week is the transparency uh, reports for all of these platforms. There's, I've got, I think, like 20 plus of them that, you know, Twitter, Pinterest, Facebook, Google, they all have these transparency reports and studying what they put in them, how much data of what, and then trying to assess, like, well, what is their motivation for doing this? You know, um, they, you know, obviously they're getting asked um, for a lot of information for things, and they want to share this fact, I guess, up to a certain degree. And part of that is legally what they can do and what they can't do. But it's it's in their selfish interest. It's not like they're doing it for us. Um, they are for for a certain theater aspect of it, I guess, to make us feel like, you know, oh, Google would never do that, you know, like you were saying with the Pokemon data. So um, there's a there's a game to all of this. And it's it's very much political theater when it comes to um, our privacy, our data, our photos, our payments, all the things that that are increasingly making our life go around. But there's this tussle going on between who owns it, who has access to it, you know, all of that. Yeah, and then, you know, and and really what are how how are these moments going to be archived in perpetuity? How are they going to be preserved? What what sort of what mechanisms do we have in place to record our own personal histories? Um there was Dennis Cooper, I believe his name is, although I might not have his name right, an artist who had his I think what twelve years of his blog that was on Blogspot Blogger. I mean, deleted by Google. Um, he has said he had no backups, um, no other copies of his work, gone, uh, gone. And so, at a personal level, but also, you know, when I when you think of sort of what 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 artifacts will there be? from this piece of shit year 2016 to reflect the importance that the digital world has played on unfolding of major, major events. And I'm not sure there will be many. Yeah, well, it'll definitely be a very curated version of what happened probably by white men. Well, that's comes. I mean, that comes back to what Isn't the, that the, the definition conversation. of history. I mean, right. But that comes back to the what you opened with the power of algorithms, right? So rather than having sort of, rather than having primary documents that historians can sift through and sort through and sort of tell a narrative, that the narrative will be sort of preordained by an algorithmic selection of documents. From upon which they are forced to base their analysis, which the government gets the first dibs on what stays and what goes, what's included in that, and what doesn't, and then I guess or or the company does first, but the the government gets to say, but we get we get the last say on what's remembered and how things are are uh, set in stone, I guess.